yesterday with uh, somebody in our church and they're like pastor I love it you're always excited when you preach about something you're just always just excited about that and and I am I get excited about this because God really this week as I prepared for this message has really used this word to challenge me too and again, I've said before when I preach to you if my, if my my hand is my finger is pointed towards you there's three pointed back towards me Right? And this is very true, is that generally speaking, uh, this, these messages that I preach, they, God deals with me during the week. And this is one of those kind of messages. I'm excited about it. And, and if you've been with us at all this summer, you know that we've been walking through uh, the story of Moses. We've looked at his life, and we've been looking at the book of Exodus, and we've kind of been walking through slowly and discovering some things about Moses that, that are very applicable to our lives as well. God delivering the people of Israel from captivity in Egypt and bringing them to freedom, there is so much there for you and I to glean from and understand and learn from. And this story today that we're going to tackle this morning is just like that. You're with us last week. You know we talked about a very difficult passage. We talked about the ten plagues. The ten plagues represent uh, judgment. And that's a tough passage to to swallow, isn't it? There's some, some tough things that happen in that passage. But we discovered and learned last week that with God, when judgment comes, deliverance is soon to follow. And that deliverance brings about freedom, right? And that's what we've discovered uh, last week. And today is kind of part two of last week. We're talking about this week, this week what that brings us towards. And I'm excited about that this morning. And so, if you would, open your Bibles today to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12, we paused at this point last week. We read through the, the ten plagues. We paused at the last one. And if you read the narrative of what happens here, you find that it's almost like you have to pause at this point, right? Because the Bible almost takes a pause, and it takes a long time to walk through and talk about this last plague. Let's be honest, this last plague is the most difficult and the most challenging of all the plagues. We find right here that, again, God is about to bring his people from captivity to freedom. And that's a journey, right? And see, that's the thing with a lot of us believers, uh, we can learn a lot about this, about God through this passage. It's because that's God's plan for us as well, to bring us to a place of freedom, amen? There you go, Aaron. That was just for you. But, uh, but uh, um, it's, it reminds me of a story of, of an elephant. So I got a picture up here of it this morning. And, and this is an interesting picture because in this picture, you've seen this before, there's a giant, powerful elephant that's tied to a stake. And this elephant could easily break from the stake, right? He could be easy. He could just break free. This, the stake really has no real hold over the elephant, but yet, if you look at places that have elephants and, and, and circuses and such, tying an elephant to a stake is a, very, is a very effective way of keeping that elephant down. Now, the way this works is that way back when this elephant is a small baby elephant, uh, a, a cute little guy, you know, he's just real little, uh, they're tied to a stake. 
And what happens is that elephant fights and works and tries and fights and works and tries to break free from the snake. But because he is pretty small and pretty weak, he can't break free from the snake. He tries, he might, and never is going to happen. And he continues that. And for several hours a day, an elephant is broken by being tied to a stake. And an interesting thing happens is that elephant gets older. The elephant goes from a place of being not powerful to break free to being, to being powerful to, to break free, but yet doesn't break free. Because then a thing happens throughout his life where he stops trying to fight and stops trying to break his freedom. And a point comes where he could break free, but he doesn't break free because he stops the fights. And that's how a lot of believers are as well. A lot of believers have been provided, their freedom has been, been given and provided. It's been bought, it's been paid for, it's their form, it's available for them, but yet they don't live as free people. How do I know? I've seen some scowly-faced Christians, ain't right? You know, I've seen some Christians that have some scowls in their faces. I've seen some people that I say, you're a Christian? And they got this long look on their face and and they just don't seem free a a a christian living like that should be an oxymoron right it should be it shouldn't make sense people should say christians are the most joy-filled the most passion-filled the most happy the most passionate people on the planet it should be that way yet so often it's not and we come to today could give us some clues as to why that might be the case. You see, this morning we're going to walk through and understand the Passover journey. And it's a big piece of the puzzle. It's such a big piece of the puzzle that God, again, spent a lot of time in this passage, this narrative, to talk about what it, what it was. And so what happened, of course, as you know, is that it got to the end of, of the, the, the plagues. God warned Moses, or I'm sorry, God warned Pharaoh through Moses, let my people go or the worst plague will come and it will be terrible. There will be weeping. There will be crying. There will be, it will be awful. It doesn't have to be like this. You can be delivered from this if you just let my people go. And of course, Pharaoh's grip grew tighter and grew stronger. And so God gave some strange instructions to Moses, didn't he? I mean, let's be honest this morning. They're a little bit strange. And if you looked at this, as a first, or as a, as a person, in the first person here, and said, because God said to the people of Israel, he, he said, take a, a lamb, a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb, kill it, um, take the blood of this lamb, put it on a hyssop branch, spread it over your doorway of your home, go inside of your home, stay in that home overnight, eat the meat from the lamb in a certain way, and then what will happen to you is that you'll be, you'll be passed over as the death angel comes. That's a little strange, isn't it? Now, if we, you have the the time and you have the, the 2020 vision of history, you know that this is rich with meaning. But to them, it was just what God told them to do. And so what happened was, was they did exactly this. Let's look at verse 12 right here. Verse 13 of, of chapter 12, it says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and I will see the blood, and it will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt. And that's again what happens. 
These people who were obedient, who did this thing, the Bible says that they were passed over uh, by the death angel and their home was protected and saved. Now again, there is just so much meaning there. You could go on and on and on about all the cool things that that passage talks about and points to, represents. This is a moment that will live in infamy. And, and I wonder, I wonder if the people of Israel understood the hugeness of this moment. I wonder if they understood what point in, in, in life that they were at. You know, there's those moments, aren't there, where you just know that this moment will be a moment that you will never forget, right? The birth of your child, uh, you know, uh, marriage, wedding day, whatever it might be. And one of those days for me, and for probably many of us, we're alive at this point, was 9-11. I will never forget where I was on 9-11. I'll never forget it as long as I live. I'll never forget the feeling in my heart as I walked into the church office that day. And the associate pastor said, Steve, you got to see what just happened in New York. And I, I looked at this, this, the, 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 the TV, and I saw the Twin Towers burning. And I remember watching them go down. I remember thinking, I will never forget this moment as long as I live. And I remember thinking, this will change everything. And that's, what, that's what's happened, hasn't it? That moment's changed everything. Our country can be, in some ways, marked pre-9-11 and post-9-11, right? Because it was a big moment, well, this moment right here in Israel's history is one of those kinds of moments. It is marked. It is different. It is a moment that will, again, live in infamy. And as this happens, and as this, this, this passage unfolds, God pauses again and gives the people instruction to the, for the rest of their lives to remember this moment. He says, I want you to start a new festival. I want you to start a new tradition in Israel, and I want you to do it like this. And God laid down some very specific instructions in how they were to appreciate and remember and look back on this moment that will live it in for me. Never forget this Passover. Never forget this moment. Never forget what happened. Never forget what I did in this, in this point with your people. Never. God lays down the instructions right there, and of course we Fast forward to the time of Jesus, and that's what's happened, right? Throughout history, the people of, of the Jewish people have observed Passover in a very similar way. Even to nowadays, even look to, to now, the way Passover has been celebrated is very similar today with what it was back in the days of Jesus. So let's find a place right here in Scripture where Jesus is celebrating Passover, there's a spot in, in, in uh, Luke chapter 22 where Jesus is sitting down to Passover meal or about to with his disciples. This again was a thing that was done every year at this point. Every year at this time, the people of Israel remembered and it started out in a certain way and it continued in a certain way. It was a big festival, a big celebration. And it says in verse 7 here of, of 20, chapter 22 of, chapter, of Luke, Says, then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Got to pause there. That is incredible. It's incredible that all of what was about to take place happened when it did. On the day that is marked to remember when the people of God were delivered the first time. It's incredibly interesting. And so what happens here is God gave a cedar, not a 
tree, but an S-E-D-E-R, which means is Hebrew for order. God gave an order in which the people of Israel were to remember this moment. So they had that. We see right here that on this day, on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there was an order in which they were to do and go about things to remember Passover. So verse 8, so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? Verse 10, he said to them, behold, and this is why Jesus is so cool. Because he said, wait, he says, I'll tell you how it's going to go down. He says, you'll enter the city, you'll see a man carrying a jar of water, he'll meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. It's like CSI or 24 stuff here, right? And they tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? It's a pretty, pretty bold statement, right? Can you imagine going to someone's house and saying, okay, go into Monticello, and on Cedar, Cedar Avenue, you're going to see this, this house. Walk in there and say, where's your guest room? I'm going to eat, eat there with some, some total strangers, right? That's a pretty crazy thing. But that's exactly how it took place. He will show you a large room. Uh, it's furnished. Prepare the meal there. And then they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. Verse 14, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table. The interesting detail there. Uh, if you before, have you ever eaten at a Mediterranean re- restaurant before? If you ever have, it's a pretty fun experience. Um, I had before, I went to a place, there was a, there was a place in a town I used to live in that was a very legit Mediterranean restaurant where if you walked in, they had in the front, they had tables like normal, but then in the back they had these these drapes, and these drapes were covering little rooms where the tables were about this tall, and they had pillows around the tables, and you would sit and you would recline at the table. Now, my first time there, my buddies and I were like, let's try that. And we're like, yeah, let's do that. So we, we do this, and we had food all over our shirts after that. We had food every place. And I learned that there's a good thing that I live nowadays and not back then, because I was a mess, Okay. But this is an interesting detail here because what, what this means right here is that reclining at the table was not a normal thing in all of, his, in, in all of the, the people there. You only did this if you were a, a, a free person. Reclining at the table was a, a sign of freedom. They had tables and chairs for other people. You reclined if you were showing yourself that you were showing the world that you were free. So that's interesting that the Bible puts that detail in here because it's pointing us, it's showing us, and it continues to kind of point the the arrow towards what God is about to do when he started and laid down way back when, when the people of God were delivered from the hands of of, of, of the Egyptians. And he said to him, verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I'll tell you, I'll not eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Which is interesting because for a Jew to say he would not eat Passover anymore was like crazy. So he is basically saying something big is about to come. And then he said, verse 17, he took a cup. And when he had given thanks for it, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Verse 19, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And then an interesting detail comes in the next portion right here, verse 20. And likewise the cup, after they'd eaten, so this is a different cup. He took that saying, this cup is the one poured out for you that is the new covenant in my blood. Now, a lot of Christians miss this detail here because we've been raised with communion, where you have one cup and one loaf of bread, right? That's just kind of how it works. There's a cup and bread, and you, you celebrate communion with those two things. But what we see here is we see an interesting detail because we are seeing here a snapshot of the cedar, of the order of how they would have appreciated and celebrated Passover, And there's a snapshot here of something that happened that was very, very clear and continuous. You see, the the Passover cedar that he was celebrating has a very interesting basis and beginning. And and the basis and beginning was, on this first night, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the people of of, of Israel, and they still do this, observed a, a, a tradition called the Four Cups. The Four Cups. And you say, well, what's that from? Well, it comes from... And the foundation, which is read every year on, the, on this meal, and, and from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. And so it shows right, right here, and what happens is the, the person who is the head of the meal will read this passage, and they'll stop. Now notice here, there's four I wills. There's four things that God will do that, they, that, that you'll notice here. The first, verse 6, it says, Say therefore to the people of Israel... I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. So what happens here in Jewish tradition is they pause here, and they, and they take a cup, and it's called the, the cup of sanctification. And they drink that cup, they put it down, and then they continue. They say, and I will deliver you from slavery from them. And then they take another cup, and they pick it up, and they drink from that one. And that is the cup of deliverance. And then they continue. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. So they, they stop and they drink a cup. It's the cup of redemption. And then finally he says, I will, I will take you to be my people. And, and, and they stop there and they drink the cup of praise. Or the actual Hebrew word is the cup of halal. Which is an interesting word for praise. It is, means crazy, ridiculous praise. We'll get into that in a minute. But they, they stop there, they drink the cup of praise, and then the, the person continues to lead and says, I'll be your God, you'll, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. They drink these four cups, and every year they've done this for thousands upon thousands of years. Now here's the deal. We have to look at this and say, there's something there. There's something important for us there to understand. There's something there for us to see. You see, the four cups are four parts of a journey to freedom that God began to set his people out upon, and not just to see, but to remember and experience forever. How many of you before have ever been on a, on a hike to the top of a mountain? I have. I've climbed a mountain before. I was, and I've told the story before. I was in Colorado Springs years ago. My buddies and I, and we were, we were, we were hiking in the mountains, and uh, we were down near Pikes Peak. Now, Pikes Peak is a massive mountain. It's 14,000-some feet tall, uh, and I'll be honest with you, we're a little too chicken for that one. And so we saw that, we said, no way, we're not doing that. But there's a smaller mountain next to Pikes Peak, 
And we said, we can, we can do that one, okay? We're, we're going to tackle that one. So you can see it from the, the ground. And that was our, our whole thing. We wanted to do a mountain you can see from the ground. Because we wanted to come out of 7-Eleven and say, we pick, climb that mountain, okay? So it was a much smaller mountain. We, we climbed this top of this, and we were backpacking. We had our packs on our back. We had our, 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 our knapsacks. We had our food. We had, everything was, was heavy. Uh, it was full. It was, it was kind of warm that day. It was the middle of July. And we're walking to the top of this mountain. And I, I remember how hard it was. We were a bunch of kids from uh, Minnesota, Nebraska, Wisconsin, Iowa. And so we're all from this, you know, the Midwest area. And if you've before been to the mountains, you, one thing it becomes clear that the higher you go, the, the thinner the air gets. And back then, I was in pretty good shape back then. I was a pretty, pretty, pretty built guy at that point. But I was going crazy. I couldn't handle it anymore. Uh, I was so out of breath and so out of it. And I was, remember walking, all of us were. My, my, my buddy, who was, who is, who is today, is a, 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 a champion, uh, a mountain bike racer, was having a hard time breathing. And I remember at one point, we stopped and said, is this worth it? And we're like, yeah, it's worth it. Because what else are we going to be able to do this? We kept going. We kept going. And as the higher you got, the, 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 the ground changed. We went from having dense forests and pine trees and such to uh, having uh, a little less dense forest. And the trees got, got less and less. And there was smaller trees. And there were smaller plants. And, 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 and there was a, a few more rocks. And, and it got a little harder. And the higher we went... Uh, the more we went, the, the harder it was to breathe and the, the more difficult it was to, to do this. But the higher we went, we started seeing out of, beyond us, we started seeing the view. And I remember a point which I said, I'm getting the top of this because I want to see that. We kept going and it got harder and it got thinner and the, it changed from being trees and shrubs to being uh, rocky and a few, uh, a few little shrubs here and there. And then it went to just being complete rock. And I remember there was, there was snow on the ground. Okay, it's mid-July and there's snow on the ground. We had a snow fight. It was pretty fun. And we're all like, uh, uh, uh. you know, we're throwing snowballs at each other because it was so hard. But I, I will never forget getting to the top of that mountain. The picture that I will, that is emblazoned on my memory forever. I remember getting to the top and getting over that peak and standing on top of that peak and looking out over the vastness of everything and seeing before me Pike's Peak not quite so high and seeing some of the, the, the vegetation trees below me, seeing clouds below me, seeing the city and seeing uh, the, the, the valley over here. And it's just, it was breathtaking. But I'll tell you something. It was hard. Why do people do that to themselves? Why do people put packs on their back and walk up a hill on a mountain? Why do they do what would seem crazy and put themselves in that position on purpose? Why do people do that? Well, I'll tell you why they do that. They do it because of the view at the top. That they know there's something up there that they've not yet experienced. That there's something there that they will never forget for the rest of their lives. And something that they will be marked forever by. That's why we do this. That's why, it's, that's why you go through this difficult journey. That's why, that's why I did it. My, my point this morning is this. Mountain climbing is, is difficult. 
It's challenging, but it's exhilarating when you get to the top. It's like nothing else when you get to the top. And you, you may or may not know this, but God has some mountains for you to climb. God has some things for you to do. And, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of believers think of their Christian life in terms like this. That when I was 12 years old, or at some point in my life, I said the sinner's prayer, I folded my hands, I said the, the prayer, and that was it. And now I'm done. And a lot of us, a lot of believers, have never grown beyond that point in their Christian walk. They've never allowed themselves to climb some mountains and walk through some things because that, they feel, is the, the highest moment of all. And, I, and God, in, in this passage here, is communicating to us that that's simply not the truth. It is the beginning of the journey. It's the beginning of the moment. It's the beginning of what, we, what God has us to go through. And again, it's like mountain climbing. It's challenging, exhilarating. It's thrilling. But it is challenging. And this passage here today, this, this, this Passover story, these four cups, these are an outline of that journey. And you say, well, how do you know, Pastor? How do you know that? It's just, we're saying, well, it's because this is what God is telling us through this passage right here. This is why God has had the people of Israel recite this and say this and remember this and talk of this throughout history. It's why it's placed right where it is at the precipice of the biggest moment in human history, both when the, the people of God were delivered and then for, fast forward to the time when Jesus was about to give his life for the world. It's the same exact thing. God has a plan and God has a journey for you and I to follow. And a lot of us look at this journey and think, it's just too much. Just too high. It's just too tough. I, I'll tell you, it's tempting to let my friends continue and go. It's tempting to, to stop and to pause at the beginning of that, that, that journey. It was tempting to say, well, I've gotten up pretty, pretty high. I, this is high enough. And a lot of believers are stalled in that position. See, this is why, this is why we exist as a church. We exist to help people begin on that journey, to start in that place. We're here to make it simple for people to find and follow Jesus, that there's journey written right into our vision statement because that's what we're here to do. We want people to start on this journey and get going on the journey. But we also want to help those that are stalled on the journey take the next step. My friends... The people who were around me were instrumental in me going. Because I'll be honest with you, I was chicken at one point. I needed them to help. And the same sense was me for them. At one point, my friend Ben, who again is a championship bicycler, he's an, he is in amazing shape, far better than I am, and he wanted to stop at one point. I said, no, Ben, come on, let's go. Think of what's at the top of this mountain. That's the journey God's called you and I beyond this life. See, it's, 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 it's there, and we, we, we need to understand this, that you, you never need to stall, but you can always grow. And spiritual growth has kind of always been this kind of nebulous thing that, oh, I, I want to grow in Christ, so how do I do this? Well, it's, it's outlined right here in the scriptures, and so that's where we go through today. The, the first cup if you did not take notes before, which is great, because now we're going to do this. The first cup is the cup of sanctification. 
Big church word, isn't it? Uh, that's that's a, a church word that, that a lot of us, maybe you don't know what it is, or maybe you've heard it, and you think, well, that's something to do with being holy or, or, or whatever, but you don't fully know the whole thing. Maybe you know the, 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 the de- definition well, but, but what this means, what this speaks to, is that we are made holy. That we have been, that we have been made holy. This word speaks to changing of identity. When I got married to my wife, Lisa, years ago, thankfully, she took my name and not me to hers, but whatever, uh, we, her identity changed on that day. Now, my wife sometimes ticks me off, okay? Just no question. And sometimes, more than not, I tick her off. Uh, let's be honest. And that just happens. But our, her identity has not and will not change based on what she does or does not do. Because in that day, her identity changed. She was made different. As a Christian who has responded to the Holy Spirit's call for salvation, you have been brought into the family. Your identity changes. You are different. And Paul illustrates this as adoption. You have been adopted into the family of God. Your identity is different. Your identity is changed. And, and again, sometimes we look at this and we don't realize the depth and the breadth to what this means as believers. That before I gave my heart to Christ fully, I was one thing. After that, I am completely different. My identity has changed. My identity is different. My kids are, are not perfect. They mess up. They fight. They bicker. They complain. They do all these things. But one thing is for sure. I don't care whatever they do. I don't care what they say. I don't care what happens in their lives. They will always be my children. I will always love them. I will always call them my own. They will always be royalties. And for that, I say, honey, I'm sorry. But, but anyway, it's something hard for us to grasp here. You see, we are not made holy by actions. But we're made holy by the blood of Jesus. And for a lot of believers, man, I'll tell you, this is the hardest thing to grasp. It's so hard for us to understand this. It's like we go into a candy store, and the nice, kind owner says, here's son or daughter, here, here's a, a Butterfinger bar, which is made by God, and so they're good. So he gives us this Butterfinger bar, and, and we take it, and we say, thank you, sir. But now he gave us to us as a gift, but now I want to pay for it, and I want to earn it. And he says, no, 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 no. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a you know, earn it. It's a gift. It's a free gift. But so often as believers, our heart and our call is that we, we receive this and then try to turn it around and earn it and expect others to do the same. Our, our attitude says, get it together or God won't like you anymore. And that church is absolutely flat, dead out, wrong. It's a wrong thinking. It's a wrong mentality. It's a wrong way of thinking, and our, our nation and our church movement and our structure has been influenced by this, and frankly, we've gotten this part wrong sometimes. Holiness does not come by what I do. Holiness is a gift that's been given to me by God. You cannot do enough to be holy. You cannot do enough to be clean and righteous. You just can't. You can try you can work, you can believe that, you can, you can, you can tr- tr- work for it, which many of us do, but it will leave you not free. 
It will leave you in, a, in the washing machine of continual frustration and terribleness. See, see, God's wrath against sin was satisfied through Jesus. Hebrews 10.10 says, and by that we've been made, been sanctified through the what? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. A, a theme in scripture is that you cannot do enough to earn salvation. But a theme in our personal lives, no one knows this but you do, but I know myself well enough to know that this is a thing that influences me. That though I know this in my mind, in my heart I think it just can't be true. It just can't be true. It's too good to be true. But the reality is that God changed you. God made you new. And and the reality though today is, is sometimes this is where this conversation stops. Okay, which it shouldn't because we cannot be let off the hook because this continues here. See, this is our first step. If you are stalled on this step, if you are stalled here without understanding this incredibly important ideal, you will be you will you will you will have a hard time moving to the next gener- to the next steps. But the next step right here, number two, is the cup of deliverance. See, God made a statement that says, not only am I going to get you out of Egypt, that's sanctification, but I'm going to get the Egypt out of you, right? Israel was heavily influenced by Egypt. Israel had some things that they picked up from Egypt. And our need for deliverance comes in various forms. It's habits, it's lust, it's greed, attitudes, language, ideas, thoughts. There are things in our hearts and our minds that we have got to be delivered from. There's thoughts that I have and there's, there's ideas that I have that are not from God. And I, if, I, if he doesn't deliver me from those things, they will cause frustration and cause difficulty in my life. And here's the cool thing is that God has provided power to deliver us from those. They bring us back to bondage. But... For us to understand and walk in freedom, we have to take the first steps. Israel's freedom was provided for them when God gave the word. But they had to step, and they had to walk, and they had to begin the journey, begin the process, to actually see the freedom come to pass, right? That's how it is in our lives so much so often, too. I had coffee this, this week with a guy from our church who, uh, he was, he was, we were talking about this message and it was kind of in my heart, so I was going through with him and he's not here today, so I got to, you know, try it on him. And he goes, you know, pastor, that's so true. For so many years, I struggled with my Christian life. I knew it all up here, but I didn't have it here. He said, until God began to challenge me to take steps to walk this out and become different, I never understood how much joy and peace and life that I could have that was waiting for me. I just began to step it out. God has begun a process of deliverance in us. And it will never, never stop. Thank God. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is where, where grace and works come in an impasse. You'll notice that a lot of Christians will be heavy on grace and very light on works, and they are, they are in error. 
A lot of Christians are very heavy on works and very light on grace. They are in error. That's why the word says, why Jesus says, I look for worshipers of worship in spirit and in truth. Why, why grace and works, which are seemingly completely different ideas, are both important. We need a balance of the both in our lives. I am saved by grace through faith to do the work God's called me to do. I'm saved by grace through faith so that I can work and do what he's called me to do to be delivered and walk away from a life that frankly is, is taking me no place. If you miss this part, if you miss this portion, if you miss this, 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 this part right here, you will stay stalled in your Christian life. And a lot of believers have. This is potentially the, 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 the most difficult p- p- position for a believer to walk behind, walk beyond. We, we kind of get grace, but we don't really get works, do we? Because there's a lot to do. There's a lot of stuff we can do. There's a lot of things we can be a part of. There's a lot of things that, and so we struggle and stall, and we, we, we have freedom given to us, but yet we do not walk as a free because we've not taken steps to walk away from the things that have bound us up. Does it make sense this morning? When God's called us to take steps away from those things, that there's life there. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord are what? Are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory for another. We are being transformed. I'll never forget when God illuminated that scripture to me so many years ago. Steve, you are being transformed. I am not who I'm going to be in 10 years. In 10 years, hopefully you look at me and say, man, I'm glad you changed. You had a lot of stuff in you that was pretty bad, and I'm glad it changed. But I'll tell you one other thing, is that I am not who I was 10 years ago. I'm not who I was 15, 20, 30 years ago. I'm different. That's the point. You know, we beat ourselves up so much for not being who we should be in 20 years from now when we, are, we, we, we don't appreciate where God's taking us right now. There's things in my life that have to be dealt with. There are things, attitudes, lust, whatever else, that I have to lay down before him now if I'm going to get to this place. That's why I'm being transformed. That's why, I am, I, that's why we, 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 we put these things before him and we allow ourselves to be changed by him and morphed by him and become made new by him. I'm not going to be the person I, want, I am today. Ten years from now, you're going to say, Pastor, I'm so glad that God changed you. Wow. But my, my wife would anyway. But anyway, num- number three, that takes number three this morning, because this is, again, an incredible one. Because if you get those first two down, this one becomes so sweet. Number three, the cup, number three is the cup of redemption. Again, redemption is a, is a, a church word, but it has incredible, incredible value and, and, and meaning in our everyday lives. I think redemption, I think of the old Seinfeld episode, and I'm not, I'm not you know, saying Seinfeld's whatever, don't, don't you know, send me letters, but, but there's probably nothing better than this, this episode of Seinfeld to explain what redemption is. You've seen, if you've seen the, the, the episode before, it's where Kramer and, and uh, Newman are, uh, they have a the scheme they've worked up, and so Newman is a mailman, and he gathers a whole truckload, he's a, a truckload of pop cans to drive to Michigan. Now, I lived in Michigan for a lot of years, and in Michigan, uh, every pop can is worth 10 cents. 
Okay, which is great. You can clean up. Uh, it was an amazing uh, 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 fundraiser for our youth groups. And so uh, you, if you brought, you know, 100 cans to the, to, to the store, you got, to, you know, was that 10 bucks or one buck, whatever it is. And so um, it, it's an amazing thing. So you take this worthless piece of metal that's been used, that's been used up, its purpose is done, its purpose is gone, it doesn't have any meaning anymore, in most places it's just smashed and thrown away, but in Michigan it has value because somebody assigned it to have value. So of course, Kramer and, and uh, Newman, the scheme, they drive this truck to Michigan and they don't make it and all that kind of stuff, but it would be a pretty genius thing to do if you could pull it off. But, but the point is this, is that, 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 that this, this, this piece of metal, which is worthless because it has value, you can take it there and it's redeemed for, the, for value. It's redeemed for something of, of, of value in our lives. That's what God has done in us. God has taken you which you would say, and many of us would say, and I've heard before, I don't have gifts. I don't have talents. I don't have things to offer. I don't, I don't have anything to give. That's baloney. Because God's taken you, who, who maybe in your own right don't have value, but assigned value to you, and he has redeemed you for a purpose. He's redeemed you for a reason. He's given you value. He's given you something that, that, that's there. And again, many of us are not here because we've stalled someplace on the other two. But I'll tell you something this morning. And if you've been around any time with us, you know that I talk a lot about volunteering, about helping, about getting involved, all these things. Believe me, it's not to make my job easier, okay? It'd be easier for us as a staff to do everything. That'd be easier. But that's not what God's called us to do as a church. The word says that the job of a pastor is to equip the saints to do the ministry. Why? Because each of us have incredible value of redemption to to give and to participate in in what God is working and doing on our planet. 2 Peter, or 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In other words, you were picked first on the dodgeball team. You remember when you were a kid and, and you're playing dodgeball and, and, and you're the last one picked? Well, with God, that's not how it works. You are the first one picked in the dodgeball team. You are there. You have been chosen. Why? Are you a good dodgeball player? I don't know. But you are, you've been chosen. Why? And this is important. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of his darkness into his marvelous light. You know what brings God incredible glory? is a person who was broken, a person who didn't get it, a person who was mixed up, messed up, who, got, who, who understands that God has, has, changed, has changed their identity, a person who is, who is being transformed day in and day out and different today than they were yesterday, when that person does walk through that, that process and they start to realize the value of what they are and what God's made them to do, when they start living in that, that brings God glory, right? 
What doesn't bring God glory is when a Christian says, I'm a Christian, but they sit in their hands and they have a frown on their face. They say, my life is terrible and I'm sucking on lemons and my whole life is awful because, you know, Trump's be president and all this blah, blah, blah. We sit there, we just complain and be frustrated. That doesn't bring God glory. What does is a believer who says, I am, I've been bought to the price. I've been made new and I have a purpose and a reason. See, this is written into the Passover story. This is written into the story of Passover. It's, it's there, it's consistent, but what's also interesting, it is written into the story of the entire Word of God. The entire Word of God has this same process, this same pattern, over and over and over and over again. 1 Corinthians 14.1 tells us to desire earnestly spiritual gifts. Otherwise, you'll get to the spot, you'll turn around, and you'll go back. Again, this is, this is the, our, the church staff. This is our, our highest, most important, most valuable responsibility. Our responsibility is not to do it all. Our responsibility is to lead and to help release people to do these things. And you say, what's... Well, Great, that's great, that's easy. You try that for a while. We'll see how easy that is. But anyway, so, so you walk through this whole process, and, and, and again, this colors everything we do as a church. And you walk through these three steps, but we're not towards the end yet. As if I could have uh, uh, <coughs> Karen come forward this morning, just to play real quietly, I want to close with number four, because number four is potentially the best one of all. Number four leads us to this number four spot, which is the cup of praise. And that word praise, again, is the word halal. And, and halal, in Hebrew, there's many words of praise. There's different words, and they all have different meanings. And this one here is a really great meaning. And, and I want to illustrate this meaning by this. Is years ago, I, I'm, I, I'm not a golfer, but I like to golf, and so it's very important you understand that. But years ago, I was golfing with a couple of kids in my youth group who were fantastic golfers. And they always let me know it. They rubbed it in my face that they were good and I was bad. That they could hit a five or whatever on a five and I would hit a ten. They, they made sure I know this until one day. I got up to this place, this Mississippi National uh, Golf Course in Red Wing, and it was, I think it was hole number seven or eight. It's a par four, and it's a dog leg to the left. It's got a big, huge turn on it, and there's a bunch of woods right here. And so I get up to, I'm the first of the tee box, and I get there, and I say, you know what? I'm driving this thing over the, over the, 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 the woods. My, this kid goes, yeah, right, you can't make that. And I said, watch me, which I've done this before, and it hasn't worked out so good. But for some reason this time, it worked. I get up there, and I swing that club, and it's an amazing shot. It's straight. It's far. It's true. I'm like, that thing was good. And so immediately, I said, I don't care about you guys. I got in my golf cart. I drove with them. I said, get in, because I wanted to see it. We drove down to the hole, and the hole, the ball landed this far from the tee. Now, here's the deal. Again, I'm not a good golfer, okay? That's not, that's not skill. That was a gift. What I did at that moment was halal praise. I threw up my clubs in the air. I started running around and dancing and singing. I did a, I tried to. I didn't do it very good, but I, I, I tried to do a, a, a cartwheel. Didn't work very good, but I tried. But I was going nuts. I was going crazy, and people were watching and Laugh at me. You know what? I didn't care. That's, that's halal praise. 
This journey of discipleship that God has us on leads us someplace. It's not just praise just to praise, not just praise to make the worship leader feel better. You know, it's not just praise to have a nice song and and that kind of stuff. That's not it. When you know there's no condemnation, when you are in the process of junk that keeps you down is dropping, when you have found the reason you breathe air and you're doing it, you will praise. You will give him glory, and then God will be fully praised. The word halal means clamorously foolish praise. What the greatest joy in the world is that all hell could break loose, and you don't. The greatest joy in the world is that no matter what could happen, you don't break free from this thing. It's the halal life. It's the praise life. And, 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 and I, I, I tell you, I, watching my, mom, my, my wife walk through losing her mom was one where I saw this take place in my life. My wife lost her mother to cancer years back now. It's been a long time. and We were very close. It was a hard, hard time of our lives. It was a dark time. There was so many things happening in our lives. I can't get into it. It's a terrible story. I, it was awful. The darkest period of my life. And then what, 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 seemed, what would seemingly be the most dark of all was when my wife's mom succumbed to cancer. But I, I saw my wife, who I know is a woman of godly character, I saw that when everything was going terrible, that nothing broke my wife. That, that look of joy that you see on her face, the look of joy in her heart, that doesn't come because of some weird thing. It comes because my wife has embraced this life. It's a testimony of a person who does not grieve like the, le- like the rest of the world. The testimony of a person who does not grieve like everybody else does, who grieves differently because they know that they know that they know that they know that God has saved them, God has delivered them, God has given them a purpose, a hope, and a future, and that is a reason to celebrate. Amen? That's the life God's called us to live. Let's read here as you stand across the room today because it moves us to the place we get to. Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your spirit from me. Restore to me the what? The joy of my salvation. And and uphold me with a willing spirit. You bow your head and close your eyes this morning across this room. You see what's, what's fascinating about this is that this is our vision as a church. If you don't know, our, our church, we are here to worship God. We're here to connect people to him and each other, to help people grow, help people serve. Our vision as a church looks a whole lot like these four cups. God has called us, church, to something fantastic and special and amazing and incredible. And maybe you're here this morning, heads bowed, eyes closed. You're here today and you are you are stalled someplace along that journey. You are stalled in one of those spots. You're having a hard time with one of those things, and I'll let the Holy Spirit deal with you on that. Which part that you are, maybe you're here today, and you are just having a hard time with 
Salvation in general, you don't feel very saved. You don't feel that things are that great. or what, I don't know what it might be in your life, but I want to encourage you today to remember that when you, have been, when you came to Christ, your identity changed. Maybe you're here this morning, and you would say, I get that part, but there are some things in my life that are destroying me, they're holding me down, and I can't let those things go. And you have felt abandoned, you have felt angered, you have felt all kinds of feelings. This morning, I want to encourage you to look for ways to step away. The, 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 it's, it's been given, your free has been bought, but you need to step away from those things. From attitudes, from lusts, from bitterness, from thoughts, from whatever it might be. Step away. Take steps to turn and walk away and run if you must. But run away from those things. It's been bought for you, but you have to take a step to understand the freedom. Maybe you're here today and you say, I've done those things, but I feel that things are stagnant in my life. It's dry. Heads bowed, eyes closed. My life is dry. It's stagnant. It's pointless. It's purposeless. I know God. I know who he is. I love him. But man, things are done. Things are dry. I will tell you this morning that one area that might be very clear and very possible is that you have not sensed a sense of redemption. Your purpose is purposeless. Your reason is reasonless. You are, you are flapping around like a, like, like a flag in the wind. And you have no idea what you're here for. And I will tell you this this morning. If you will, the word says, desire earnestly spiritual gifts. Begin to walk in those things and discover and find those things. You will find the reason that you breathe air and you are going to love it. And you will then at that point say, I have been created on, with purpose for a person, purpose, and I can't help but to clamorously worship and sing praise to God in halal type praise and say, Lord, thank you for what you've done in my life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus, this morning I pray that you would minister over this room. Lord, I pray over that each person here today, Jesus, that comes in a very different place. But Holy Spirit, you know exactly where they are, and I pray today, Jesus, that you would not only you would speak to them, but Lord, you'd help them you actually find deliverance. You find freedom. When you bring judgment, when you do things, Lord God, in our lives, it is to bring freedom, Jesus. I pray today, God, over this time this morning, that you would speak to us. That you would challenge us. 